This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, hello, everybody. Good um, morning. Well, morning, midday um, from Germany. This is the morning break with me, Kandu. I'm an educator. I'm really excited to be here today, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about emotions in teaching and emotions learning. Why emotions? This you is may Teachers ask. Talk well, Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Let's talk it out. We're talking about emotions today and you may wonder or be wondering why did I choose this topic? Well, I'm actually quite excited to be here. Exciting is one emotion. But, you know, like a lot of things that you do for the first time or maybe things that you're new to, if you come into the classroom for the first time, what are some emotions that you as a teacher experience? There's a bit of excitement, isn't there? Um, maybe if it's a new class, maybe if you've heard something about the students, that might be not so positive and you're worried that you mightn't be able to deal with the classroom, then maybe there could be a bit of anxiety. Or if it's a very, very new class that nobody has ever taught before, so there's that curiosity if you're in a new school. What about your learners? Kids come in to school on the first day of school. There's excitement. There's, you know, joy, happiness. After, you know, six weeks of the summer break, they're happy to see their classmates, more or less happy to see you, their teacher. Um, some kids who, who are not so self-confident, they might be anxious. And this is what we're going to talk about today. I'll be talking with Anna, Anna Hasper. Anna's based in Dubai. And um, I've decided to speak with Anna about this because Anna has a lot of experience um, teaching young learners. Um, Anna doesn't teach so much, um, doesn't teach ELT so much anymore. Anna's more involved in, you know, helping teachers, working with teachers. But Anna and I had a conversation a couple of months back about emotions in the classroom, emotions coming from teachers, coming from learners. And this is what we're going to be talking with you about today. And we're just waiting to see if we can find Anna. Here we go. Anna, are you with me yet? I think I am. Can you hear me? You are. I can hear you. <laughs> this is so exciting. Anna, I've told the audience a little bit about you, but maybe you could um, just tell us first um, what your background is and um, how did we, you know, get talking about emotions? What's your personal interest in this topic? 
Um, I think the topic has always sort of appealed to me. As a primary school teacher, looking around your classroom, you can always see kids responding in very different ways. And I've always questioned why that was. Then I moved into ELT, taught there, you work with adults. And again, I mean, I think you probably recognize this, you give feedback and some yeah. adults take it in their stride and others get really defensive. And I've always questioned like, where, where, where does this come from? Mm -hmm. And then working and have you on got an answer? Well, that would be wonderful, right? Yeah. Um, no, but I'm learning a lot about it. I'm really researching this topic. But it's just always intrigued me how people can be so different because everybody's unique. Mm -hmm. um, but particularly when I look at learning, I think being able to deal with feedback, to manage emotions, to actually be able to just be open to learning that has just always intrigued me. And, and I wish I had an answer. I think I would be very wealthy by now. But there's so <laughs> much, the more you read, the more questions I get as well. <laughs> mm. And, and um, let, let's start at the beginning then with um, the primary classroom, right? Because that's one of the things that I mentioned. Um, you know, kids come in with, I would say, this unbridled emotion, right? They, they, well, a lot of the positive emotions, I think, you know, excitement, happiness, joy, but things that we perceive or, you know, in the literature, they've called it negative emotions, things like fear and anxiety. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, it's interesting that you say the word perceived emotions, because the more I read about emotions as well, I think it's often better to say desired or non-desired emotions because okay. it, it, we do give a judgment when something is negative, right? But even yeah. a lot of enthusiasm for, let's say, make, making a dinosaur in class can become a negative emotion because it really <laughs> impacts their learning because they're going wild. So I like how you said that. Um, where this comes from, I don't know, but I think if you look at us as human beings, we often think that we may be born with how we respond and how we can manage our emotions, but mm -hmm. we actually are not born with the skills to manage our emotions, to self-regulate, to be emotionally agile. And it is something that if you're lucky enough, that gets developed in your home environment be it with parents or grandparents or caretakers but of course not every child gets that opportunity in their home environment and that's what they bring to school what they mm -hmm. have seen at home mm. and that carries over doesn't it it carries over um, across their years of study right i mean it you know, if they're they're not learning to deal with their emotions or they've got no outlets or, you know, in the home. I mean, it's okay, I think, as a learner, no matter what you learn, whether you're learning a foreign language, you know, like the business that we're in, or you're doing math or any of the sciences, and you're not doing as well as your peers. Um, there's so much competition among kids these days. And maybe you get a grade that's lower than your best friends. And if you it, it's okay. I mean, I tell my kids, um, there's a lot of, you know, great comparison going on. And I tell my kids, I say, you know, it's, it's okay. You can compare if you want, but you need to know that, you know, you did the best you could and m other children work differently. So that we, we need to be able to show our, our kids that, 
having these non-desired emotions, yeah, like frustration, dissatisfaction, um, even jealousy or madness, that's okay, but um, it's okay for the moment, but we need to move on from that. And I think then if if we don't learn, like what you say, if, if we or our children, our learners don't learn to manage their emotions, it actually carries on. It carries over into their adulthood and they'll, you know, continue having some of these non-desired emotions as adult and learners. Absolutely, because I think a good example already is when you look at kids in the classroom who get stuck on failing that maths test again and again or not getting the desired scores. And then they start to get into that loop in their head, you know, I'm not good at maths, I can't do this, da 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 da. So it's sort of you, the emotions hook you and they mm. impact your self belief, they impact your thought process. And because of your thoughts, you actually sort of create those emotions again thinking i can't do it i'm not clever enough it creates a feeling and based on that you take action and that action i think really emotions cause behavior so i think it's really important to say to our children it's okay we all have different strengths you know and we can all develop it might not be that i'm going to be um let's say as good as uh, Ushan bold in running, but I can still <laughs> progress, I can get better. And he is maybe not as good as drawing as you are. So all these, that, that's giving room for children to be themselves and to appreciate, to have that acceptance of it's maybe not my strength, but I'm doing mm -hmm. okay, I can learn. But also to teach them that if you start to think about it in, in this way, like I can't, I can't, I will never get better, it's just not me. That's not helpful. It's much better to have that emotional agility to think, okay, that didn't go so well. Let's have a look. What did I do? What could I do differently next time? And how can I feed myself forward in this process? And what you said, getting them out of that spiral I can't do it, that loop. I think that's really mm. important to manage, even as an adult. Yeah. And accepting, I think, accepting. I think um, some of us put so much pressure on ourselves to excel, don't mm. we? Or, or if we've excelled, if we're good at one thing, sometimes we have this false misconception that we're superheroes, we're superhuman and we're good at everything. And then failure comes really difficult to us and um, then it's not just us on ourselves, but um, parents sometimes have very high expectations of their children. Um, but I, I want to pick up on what you mentioned. You, I, I thought that was really interesting. You said emotions cause behavior. Um, I, I, I like what you said there. It, it really resonates with me because I think that is so true. That is so true. I think um, um, if I were to respond to that, um, I'd say a lot of the positive emotions expressed by our learners in class, these are viewed favorably. These are encouraged. Mm -hmm. And when we see, when we get positive emotions from our learners, um, the lesson, it, it just runs. I, I have no other way of saying it, right? Uh, but negative emotions, anger, annoyance, boredom is also an undesired emotion. We don't know how to deal with that. Or a lot of us, a lot of teachers don't know how to deal with that. 
And that's when such emotions cause behavior, often also undesired behavior. And, and I think the beauty or the, I don't know if this is the beauty, but the interesting thing of this as well is that out of all your lessons, let's say we've got a whole week of lessons, there might be one incident that we perceive as non-desired or negative, And that is what gets stuck in our brain. And that's what we take home. And the whole weekend we sort of enumerating like what happened and why? I don't know if you recognize that we take mm. that negative, seems to be much stronger in our thought pattern than those positive And why experiences. though? Um, why, Anna? Why does it stay? Um, I, I do this reflection with, with my students um, at the end of the week. I, I have a class on Friday. Well, I have lots of classes on Friday. And in every class, because it's the end of the week and they're all tired, and I ask them, let's look back at your week. This is the first time I've taught you, but you've had a lot of other classes. Um, what was one good thing? And they can't remember. They, they, they struggle to find that one good thing. But then when I say, okay, and one thing that wasn't so great, and everybody's hand pops up, bop, 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 you know, they, they all have something to say about that not so good thing. Why does it stick in our brain? Why can't we just move on from that? Yeah, an interesting thing there, that, that really goes back to brain research. And I'm not a neuroscientist or brain researcher, but if you look at the brain, it's very much, um, bias for negative experiences the negativity bias it's called because when you look back at our brain the old brain that was really there to find out things that were not our normal patterns you know you mm -hmm. live out in your cave and you would be on the outlook okay there is no wild animals we can go out today and if there was one that's a negativity you had to be so aware of that to be able to amend or change your behavior so you didn't get eaten by that lion so that negative is something that we just we focus on because that could be harmful for our survival so it's something that our brain just likes to get hooked on and it's not a negative it's i think it's just how the brain based on what i've read so far that's how our brain sort of is hardwired so that survival instinct you would yeah. say right totally yeah yeah um what are some undesired emotions that you've experienced now moving on from the young learner that you used to teach you now work with adults what are what are some of the undesired emotions that you've experienced from your adult learners what do they struggle with what frustrates them i think you have just put <laughs> the nail on the head there <laughs> frustration mm -hmm. um I think particularly because I teach a lot of IELTS and my other work is mainly teacher training. When I look at IELTS candidates and you know, I think every teacher listening to us knows it is quite hard to go from that 6.5 to a seven. It's not going to happen in two weeks for most, uh, most test takers. So that frustration and then just sort of that willingness to try again, or just, I had enough, I can never pass anyway, because they don't want me to pass. They just want my money. So sort of that resentment, I think. Mm -hmm. um, how can do we get people to look at things again through like brighter glasses saying but you have improved you did your other skills better i know this is still not there but it takes time mm -hmm. so to overcome that frustration i think and when i look at teacher training it's very much again when we deal with feedback 
and teachers maybe get a lesson that wasn't up to standard. It might be a below standard or a failed lesson, if you want to use that word. People can get really defensive, angry, and quite upset with their tutor. And that just always just is a bit of a shock to me. Like, oh my God, we're talking to adults and all of a sudden like <laughs> a child comes out in this person. <laughs> Um, for for our listeners who are not aware, just before I pick up on what you just said, IELTS is an um, English language test that um, many learners of, of English as a second or foreign language take in, in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, um, and they're graded on bands and I think, I, I still remember when I was working at the University of Kent, when we had you know, non-English speaking students sign up for a degree or register for a degree, they needed to have um, a grade of 6.5. So it's band 6.5. And um, you can take the IELTS as often as you need to, as often as, you know, your finances allow you to in order to get that grade. And what you're saying, Anna, is I think they're just not looking at the process are they? They're just looking at the final product because that is the product they need to have. They need to have that grade. Or when you're doing teacher training, they've done something, they've written a lesson plan um, and they want a, a grade out of that lesson plan. And it's very difficult for them to see their progress over time. They just want to see the end product. And maybe also with adult language learners, that's probably the same. They, you know, they think I only have X number of weeks and this is what I need to have at the end of the week. How do you deal with that? I think it's very much true what you say. And, and this, I mean, I don't know what you know about testing systems, but in New Zealand in primary school, for example, we have continuous assessment. There is not such a thing as one test till uh, a certain year group because we don't believe that's beneficial for kids. Um, it's very much process focused. While well, as I look at ELT and even a lot of young learner classrooms, they're expected to, get, to take all these tests like mover starter flyers, all these Cambridge language right. tests for children. And I'm not saying they're bad things, but it can cause this product or outcome focus. While well, as language learning, and particularly when we speak about that IELTS exam, um, it is a gatekeeper. It keeps the doors closed for people to either immigrate or attend a university or start a PhD program. Um, but for me, it's always much more important what you learn in that process to get ready for the tests. However, the students that don't see it, your, though. No, no. Do they? I mean, they don't see it. I mean, you as as their teacher, you may see it. For example, I, I, you know, I, I had a student where I could see for for the IELTS writing, for example, I could see that you know they were using some of the writing strategies that they'd been taught. Or um, my husband teaches English at home as well. He teaches online, and I hear him, right, um, week on week. I I hear all his lessons, and I can here and i think his students are you know getting better they're becoming more fluent they're becoming more confident but they don't see that they don't see it as a process no and then they only focus on that disappointment of not getting their desired score right um 
comes down to two things, I think. First of all, have you got actually realistic expectations that you're going to achieve a certain score in the time mm-hmm. you've got in mind? Because I think you know as well as I do, and I'm sure all the teachers out there agree that learning something takes time. And for different people, it may take different times. And that's absolutely okay. We all learn at different speeds. Um, and of course, with that as well, when you get disappointed because you haven't seen your or haven't reached your score, it is good to look at what you have achieved, because I'm sure this is the problem. But what can we learn from the other things you've done? What were the highlights? What have you improved in? Like you say, they might have improved in one particular area in writing or subskill, but maybe not yet in that score. But we seem Mm. to be fixated again because that negativity bias on what we can't do instead of what we can do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We seem to be, you know, um, it's like many other things in in education. Um, We've got these, what you call them, stages, you know. We have so-called can-do statements like at this age you have you've got to be able to do this and and at that stage you've got to be able to do um, another thing and a lot many people forget that everybody is different. Some people learn faster than others. Some people acquire new knowledge faster than others. Some people just need a, a bit more time. And and what frustrates me again here undesired emotion is um, what you just mentioned about this realistic expectations. I find for me as a teacher, sometimes my students, when they don't get the grade they need or that they feel they should be getting, um, they turn it around on me like I didn't do my job in teaching them. You know, and then if I then have a conversation with them and ask them, well, you know, how much time did you spend on revising or when did you start revising for your exam? And then they go, oh, well, you know, I I started the week before the exam and and I know that this student perhaps, you know, hasn't got regular attendance. And I ask myself, well, what's all that about then? It's it's very Um, interesting that you say that about their expectations of you. Yeah, I think that is a really important thing in our classroom and also with adult learners, but also with kids that we make it really explicit. Like, what is your role? What do you expect from me? And what do I expect from you? Often in primary, we might make these classroom contracts where we talk yeah. about desired behavior and what they want me to do and what the consequences are. We're not following what we've agreed on. Um, but I think it's really important that we have those expectations very clear. And if you look, mm-hmm. for example, at social emotional learning scenario I'm writing about at the moment, there is one of these, um, one of the domains is self-management. And it's not only about managing your emotions, managing relationships with other people around you, that social interaction aspect. It's also about managing and organizing yourself, your time. It's that autonomy factor. And Mm -hmm. I think that upsets me the most as well if it comes down to, uh, oh, well, they're no no bad students. They're only bad teachers. Because I've been told that too. And I'm like, excuse me, (laughs) you've got a role to play. My English is quite good, you know. You need to put the effort in to improve. It's no spoon feeding process. 
Exactly. Um, it's quite interesting what you, you said. We're going to talk a couple of minutes more about um, the learner perspective, and then we'll have some adverts and the news, and then we're going to turn the conversation into the teacher perspective. But I want to pick up one thing you mentioned. In the primary classroom, we have learner contracts, right? Why yes. did we give up on that in the secondary classroom, in the adult classroom? I don't know. In the adult classroom, I don't have an agreement as such that we cut out our hands and stick it on the wall. But <laughs> Maybe we should. Well, I do think we need to make very explicit what we think the roles are of the teacher and the learner. And I always take time in my first week with my IELTS students, but also on CELTA courses the first day we're talking about teaching practice. What do you expect from me? What do you expect from the other teachers or learners in your group? Um, because it's such an important aspect, and particularly now we're teaching in very culturally mixed or multicultural classrooms, everybody has a different picture of what the teacher should do. Mm -hmm. I mean, moving to the Middle East, having worked in Africa, having worked in China and in Japan, you start to see that it's often the things that we don't talk about that become sort of that pain in the neck. If we talk about it, and I'm like, I do want you to ask me questions, maybe they actually start to take that responsibility of asking for clarification if I wasn't clear. And I think it's really important that we talk about how we're going to behave together so we can be a team. Because in effect, I think you are a team as a teacher and a learner. I mean, you're working together to move the student to the next level, right? Exactly. I mean, you you definitely, you, you, you are a team. I remember, I mean, what, just now when we were talking about realistic expectations and I was sharing about, you know, my students who lay all the reasons for their failure on me. I remember during COVID, just because it, it was available, I took um, a Swedish class online offered by my university. I mean, COVID, right? You couldn't, mm. can't go out anywhere, can't do anything. Well, what you do, sit at home, learn Swedish. And, um, I think as a language teacher, I myself am quite aware that to learn a language, you've got to put some effort in. And there were weeks when I did my homework and I learned all those new words that I had to learn. And there were weeks when I simply didn't. And when I had, you know, these little pop quizzes and I did poorly, I wouldn't have dreamt of, you know, turning it around and blaming it on my teacher and saying, well, those were you know, trick questions and no, we never learned that. I just looked at my failed grade and said to myself, oh, well, there you go. Didn't revise, look what happened. And I just wish there were more people, more learners like that, rather than, you know, get into these discussion, but no, you didn't teach us that, or it wasn't in the book. It's then, you know, for me as a teacher, now we're coming um, to the next part of our chat. Um, emotions experienced by teachers themselves in the process of teaching. I'm going to play some ads first um, and the news, Anna, and then we'll carry on with that. In the meantime, all the listeners who are here, thank you for being with us. And if you want to join us in the text, in the chat, please do. Maybe you could share with us some of the emotions you've had um, 
as learners or as teachers in the classroom. Here we go, here's the news. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Schools may have to redraw budgets for the next academic year after what the BBC describes as a blunder by the Department for Education. A miscalculation came about because the number of pupils was underestimated. An original plan of a 2.7% increase per pupil in England for the academic year 2024-25 has now had to be revised to 1.9%. The government has ordered an inquiry and issued an apology. In a letter to the Education Select Committee, the DfE stressed that this was not a reduction to the total school's budget, but said the amount promised had to be recalculated because an undiscovered error made by DfE officials during initial calculations. The BBC calculated that keeping the original planned increase of 2.7% would have meant the government having to find a further £370 million to top up the overall school's budget. Jeff Barton, General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, said the error was unfortunate and frustrating and that it was likely that trusts and local authorities will have used the incorrect figures and will now need to revise budgets. A-levels and T-levels will be replaced by a new qualification for school leavers in England, according to new plans announced by PM Rishi Sunak. The plans reported across media outlets would see 16 to 19-year-olds study around five subjects as part of the so-called Advanced British Standard, including some maths to 18. The plans prompted many to question how this would be delivered, but Mr Sunak said that more teachers would be recruited and that changes would be aimed at pupils who were currently only just starting primary schools. He also announced that the changes would see students spend 195 hours more with a teacher. He also promised an additional £600 million over two years to increase training of maths teachers and funding for those studying for compulsory GCSE resits in colleges in maths and English. The plans will go to consultation for possible implementation around 2033-34. to 34. But with a general election on the horizon, many may feel they are unlikely to happen should there be a change in government. The early years and primary sectors have responded to reports in the Times that children will have to brush their teeth under supervision in schools. According to the paper, Labour is planning to use schools and nurseries to help save NHS dentistry and that the party would introduce supervised toothbrushing in schools for children aged three to five. 
and this would be prioritised in areas with the highest incidence of childhood tooth decay. Whilst dental associations and charities welcomed the proposals, Paul Whiteman of the NAHT said the union had serious reservations about how such a policy could even work and that it is not the role of teachers to make sure children brush their teeth. Schools Week reports on comments made by Amanda Spielman, Chief Inspector of Schools in England, at the Confederation of Schools Trust's annual conference. Ms Spielman was responding to questions about a rise in complaints to Ofsted about schools. In 2017-18, to 18, there were around 11,500 complaints, but in 2021-22, to 22, this had risen to almost 15,000. Ms Spielman said that post-Covid people were grumpier and have a greater propensity to put pen to paper, but the complaints leading to early inspection numbers weren't any higher than previously. She said there was no question more complaints were coming through, but that she was sceptical it reflected any real change. In Wales, the BBC reports on an ongoing school-run parking route. Residents of a street in Bridgend say issues at pick-up and drop-off times are persisting 18 months after a protest saw people living in a cul-de-sac blocking the road. They describe the scene outside of a nearby primary school as carnage, and claim cars and property have been damaged. Residents have been blocked in their driveways and this has led to rising tempers. This is a perennial problem across the country for many who live near primary schools. The row in Wales is unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. Finally, student housing has made the news again this week, this time in Salford, where, according to BBC Local News, a major student letting company has been accused of falsifying a tenant's signature on a document to defend a property's filthy conditions. The company is alleged to have added the signature to a waiver saying tenants were aware the property had outstanding maintenance when they moved in, but tenants said they had been told issues would be resolved beforehand. Upon arrival, they discovered a broken fire door, a boarded-up window and slugs and cockroach infestations. An investigation into the allegations of forgery has been launched. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. There we go. We're back. So many negative emotions here. Anna, frustration, uh, dissatisfaction, increase in the number of complaints. Mm. Mm. Well, let's... Interest. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, for me, um, one item that was reported um, evoked, I'm not sure if it's a positive or negative um, emotion, but um, it's just a trip down memory lane for me. Um, this teeth brushing in primary school, memory lane, because I grew up in Singapore. I went to school in Singapore in the 80s, and we had compulsory teeth brushing. And, um, you know, just when they were saying that, the ministers or whoever, you know, people involved in the planning, um, they're, um, let's say, what would you say, they were concerned, there you go, that's an undesired emotion, they were concerned about how it would actually play out or how, how they'd be able to manage that. Um, my first thought was, well, they should ask me because I know yeah. how it worked. I did six years of compulsory teeth brushing um, once a day at school after our um, break. And, you know, I mean, you came with your tumbler and with your toothbrush and and we sat around the quadrangle 
but obviously in today's hygiene standards they don't really want kids spitting into the gutter in the bush <laughs> into the bush there you go we started with some desirable emotion we're, we're giggling and laughing and we're happy so let's talk about us let's talk about teachers and um some of the emotions teachers experience in their classroom well in, in this case because actually to me i think that also stood out that bit about toothbrushing like teachers saying it's not part of my job and here i actually started to think we're talking a lot about teacher well-being right right um but if you look at the definition of well-being, there are lots of def different definitions and there's no one set definitions. But one of uh, the well-being definitions we see a lot is like it's a complex combination of a person's mental, emotional, social health factors, but also the physical factors. So I'm thinking, ah, oh, you know, toothbrushing does fit in maybe in that student well-being. Mm. And I mean... There are aspects of our job, right, as teachers that we can, you know, put on paper, like, you know, teach maths according to the math curriculum or teach English as an additional language according to this curriculum. But we're not, I think we have to remember, we're not Duolingo or any of these online teaching sites where the learner comes into the learning space, gets the input does the work and goes away. We're humans. Our learners are there in the physical space with us. So they come with their emotions, their baggage, their experience. We come with our emotions, our baggage, our experience. And I think in the face-to-face -face classroom, you cannot separate the content from all the other stuff that is involved with the development of, you know, all the other stuff that comes in my learning journey. I, 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 tell, I tell my students, I call our 15 weeks together. We have 15 week terms and I say to them, I say, this is a learning journey. Beautiful. It, it is, right? Because you're developing, responding to each other, but I bet you're also learning from them. So it's like a, a give and take, <laughs> I assume. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when I ask them um, for, for one class that I have, I ask them to do, sorry, I ask them to do a final course reflection. And I ask them, you know, in the reflection, so they, they submit their first draft and then I give them feedback. And a lot of them just write in the course reflection the content of the course, of what was done. And I said, well, I, I know the content. I know what was done because I taught you this. But I know not everybody takes the same thing away and not everybody has the same feelings about, you know, the class activities or the content. So I need to know what you took with you and what you experience on this learning journey. You know, I tell them, I said, it's kind of maybe not like a holiday, but like when you go on a trip and there's certain things you, you know, take photos of and then you, you post it on Instagram and some things, maybe if you keep a diary right you write a travel journal travel diary um so i want to know your experience and um i think that's what it is coming back to this you know where teachers say it's not part of of my job then the question is well what is part of your job and i think that's a really difficult question to answer 
Um, mm. But I do think, I mean, looking at particularly post-COVID and you were talking about in the face-to-face classroom with emotions, but I think also online, um, if you look at research, there's so many more cases of learners struggling with their mental health, teachers struggling with mm. their mental health, um, the demands that our society is placing on us. And if you look at testing or A-levels or exam scores to get into the school you want to, there's a lot of stress for students, I think, as well. Um, so the emotional aspect or the emotional dimension of learning or of, of us as human beings that can never be separated from learning and teaching because you bring yourself into the classroom, right? There is no yep. way that you can separate that. So yes, when I write a reflection, it might well be about my professional growth, what have I learned in your classroom? But I think there's also implicitly, we actually try to help students manage their time or maybe the organizational skills or maybe manage their disappointments that they might Mm -hmm. feel when they get an assignment back that wasn't of the level they expected. There's also that professional growth. So in reflecting on learning, I think you're always looking at what you learned professionally on the front end and what have you learned as personal growth what have you taken away and put in your backpack that you're going to take away to the next country and maybe what have you offloaded out of that backpack that you think that doesn't serve me any longer I'm going to leave that here now thank you yeah can't separate this I think we're human beings no no and and um you know the one article that we read we we read back in March. Um, I remember it says um, there was a paragraph in there that actually um, suggests that emotions are the outcomes of interactions between teachers and their teaching context, which would include then you know the learners, the classroom activities, um, the resources, and their feelings about teaching yeah. themselves. Um, emotions, if you know, looking both at the learner and teachers, emotions don't happen in a vacuum no you know i mean it's our interactions with with each other and and um one thing i find difficult um you know when i did my teacher training and i've I've been in the classroom as a teacher now for for about 20 years i i know so much even if i say so myself i know so much about the content i'm teaching i know so much about the context I'm teaching in, I teach in higher education, I work with um, German first language speakers, so I know, you know, what difficulties they have with certain aspects of English. But what I did not get and what I really, really missed out on in my teacher training and in professional development is dealing with undesired emotions. I mean, as I said at the beginning of our chat, the, the desired ones, the positive ones, we like them because we know how to deal with them. But the negative, the undesired emotions, we don't know how to deal with them, whether they come from our side, right? How do you deal with frustration at failure? How do you deal with exhaustion from, you know, not having enough hours in your day to do your lesson plans, being under time pressure, being un- under pressure to, you know, excel in your job. Um, and also the undesired emotions from your students who, who are disgruntled. I have quite a lot of disgruntled students, unfortunately. Um, nervous students. We're, we're, we're not 
supported in that area at all. Have you had the same experience? Totally. I, I don't, I can't think of any school or any context talking to so many different teachers and teacher trainers and students and just in life in general, when you talk to people, even in other fields, um, I don't think we get really taught how to become self-aware. Some people, as you might have with your students as well, I've got some people I work with that are not very reflective. They just don't mm. see that they upset someone else and that's, that happens, that's okay. But that makes it a lot harder for them than to maybe adapt to the, the culture we have at school. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, I think, a lot of what we do with emotions. They come from the inside. It's not that they are caused by a behavior of a student. It might trigger something, something that I had in my childhood and they say a certain thing to me. Like my dad used the word must a lot. Okay. Always, oh, it just and it just sets me off if somebody says to me, "You must do this." I'm like, "And I will not do this." Mm. But I'm aware of that. But initially, you're not, so you start to just I don't know, again like a hawk. You go straight in. But now I'm like, okay, they probably don't mean the must must. It's just how they say it. So that self awareness is really important for us to be able to manage our interactions. Um, to manage how we respond to other people and what they say. Because I think working in a context where you are with German students, where I am in the Middle East, where we have students from all sorts of nationalities or teachers coming together on teacher training courses, it comes from the inside. But a lot of our emotions are also culturally constructed. Yep. And I think this, I'm just going to ask you because I've read a lot about Singapore and Asian countries. Emotions are very much about keeping harmony, I think, in those countries, in your community. Definitely, yeah. You don't rock the boat. Whatever you do, you don't rock the boat, as one would say. Interesting. Yeah, that was really an eye-opener for me to read. More like a we culture. Well, as mm -hmm. I think in our country, it's more or less I'm speaking up for myself, my new yep. culture, because I'm not happy with what you are saying. And yep. yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Singapore and a lot of other East Asian countries, they have that Confucian background, right? Um, Confucius, um, his teachings um, taught or focused on not you as an individual, but you as part of a community, mm. as part of a village. So whatever you did as an individual or said or did not do would have an impact on your village, right? And that was very much the case. That's what we'd grown up with in Singapore. I was in kindergarten and right all the way through to A-levels there. And it was very much the case, let's say if you were in a classroom um, and you were unhappy about something, don't say it. Hmm. I mean, as a teen, I never said anything anyway, so I couldn't really say that that had something to do with the Confucian culture. But it really was from the learner perspective, whatever you do, just, you know, toe the line, follow, you know, everybody else, just like lemmings, and all will be good in your classroom. The reasoning, I suppose, was that, well, you know, the harmony would then be there, right? Nobody, you know, angered the teacher, you know, um, and the classroom was nice and quiet, which is great. 
to teach. I think I would occasionally like a nice and quiet classroom that just sat there and listened to me and did exercise 12A when I told mm. them to do it. Um, on the downside, I think, for the teacher is that you'd never get any feedback, would you, whether verbal or nonverbal, because everybody just would, you know, look down at their books and work. Or if they were given group work and you you paired people off or put people into groups of three, you know, and you allocated the groups, nobody would say, for example, Jim would not say that he wasn't willing to work with Tom. So you'd never know that these two characters don't work well together or they're not good for each other. You'd never know anything like that. So you put all your, you do all your work and, and you don't get any kind of feedback, verbal or nonverbal. And you go home and you think, hey, that was a great lesson. Did everything we wanted to do on our lesson plan. And, and it was often the case that kids who weren't finished or who didn't understand something, they would never say anything. And I remember we had an awful, awful math teacher. And the entire class felt that he was a math teacher a bad math teacher and nobody said anything and I think I failed the entire year um that was year eight I failed math all through year eight and it was my fault that I failed math all through year eight rather than maybe the teacher wasn't good enough because you know there were a very small handful who went on to do advanced maths you know maybe I could have been a math teacher if I had being able to express myself better. Yeah, and the ability to express yourself, I think, first of all, of course, when we work with second language speakers, they need to be able to have, or speakers mm. of other languages, they need to be able to have that language. But I think also in our multicultural classrooms that we see everywhere, not only in ELT, also in mainstream nowadays, your story for me really confirms that it's maybe even more important to make explicit what the desired behavior is, what the desired expectations of, of how we work together and can express if we're not happy or insecure about something. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to create that psychological safety. And because everybody has different ideas of what might be allowed or might not be allowed in a classroom, Making yep. it explicit, even with adults, I think is really important because I would like to know if I'm explaining something and my students don't get it. I would like them to say, well, Anna, sorry, I still don't get it. And yep. I'm not taking that as an insult. That is my mistake. I haven't been clear enough. I think that's really important that we can have that interaction, that conversation going about how can I help you better as a student. Mm. It, that, that's very much in the Asian culture or in the East Asian culture, those that have been influenced by Confucianism, they do have learners from, from this background do have, it's been instilled in them never to say to a teacher that they didn't understand the teacher because it would make the teacher lose face. Yeah. Because the failing, unlike here in the European culture, is not on them not understanding, but on the teacher not doing their job properly. And if you were to say to a teacher in Japan or Singapore or China, Taiwan, and you would say to them, yeah, sorry, I didn't quite understand that. Mm. You're causing the teacher to lose face, even though here 
where we are in the context that I am in now, um, we want our students to tell us. And this is this comes back to what you were saying about talking about expectations, talking about acceptable behavior, isn't it? I mean, there's a thing I do in my own classrooms, my students, they're university students, they're between the ages of 19 and, and 25. I do have a few who are, who are older and who come in to higher education with work experience, classroom experience. And I say to them, uh, I mean, we're multicultural as well, but they're all mainly German first language speakers and have gone through the German education system. And I say to them, I say, this room that we're in here where we meet once a week, this is our safe space. Hmm. I tell them it's okay to be frustrated. Um, I don't like it if they're bored, I tell them. Um, and I say, you know, if, if you're bored or if you find that something's not challenging enough, then speak to me about it. If there's things that you don't understand, you need to tell me. And I yeah. reiterate like what you were saying earlier, that it's an interaction teacher and student. That's what learning is. And I'm not just here to stand in front of the classroom and go, la di da di da di da this was, you know, the grammar for today. Thank you very much. Mm. Goodbye. Because if that's what you want, then go do some Duolingo. <laughs> and yet, exactly. you know, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. And, but I think this also... But even Duolingo, you... sorry, but even Duolingo is quite sensitive to people's feelings because Duolingo, you know, I remember back in the day, you'd have on some language learning app, it'll go, eh, eh, wrong answer. Yeah, but yeah. Duolingo now says, sorry, please try again. Exactly, yeah, I noticed <laughs> that too. <laughs> But, but what you're saying here as well is very much that we can't separate emotions from the cognitive aspect of learning, grades and improvement, but we can't separate that either from the culture people bring into the classroom. And that is also something I'm very much striving to embed in teacher training courses that teachers become aware of the fact that, okay, there will be emotions. How can you manage the emotions in the classroom with your students so you can provide mm. that emotionally managed classroom? How can you deal with your own emotions? Because there are different systems in our brain and sometimes we go to a threat system and it's all over. It's like a ball on a red, red blanket. Um, but how can we get ourselves back to just breathe in, breathe out, okay, it might be cultural that this came out, because I remember mm. stories from when I lived in China and, and also in Japan, that my students wouldn't ask questions, because they were embarrassed to show that they didn't know. Some of my students would come up to me, my adult learners, and they would say, Oh, Anna, hello, how are you? Oh, you've got a pimple. And I'm like, what? What? Excuse me? <laughs> but then you start to notice that is just their way of I'm paying attention to you and quite a lot of detailed attention to you. Um, they're all different cultures. And for us teachers, we need to just be aware of that and find a way of, of yeah, sort of navigating that, that journey and that road. It takes us yeah. to unexpected, unpredictable places sometimes. Yeah. Um, before we finish, I just want to share. Um, that's really funny what you just said. Um, there's a couple of things, though, that there are changes. There are positive changes. We do have, I, I, I don't know about here um, in Germany necessarily, but I do know that 
um, in England, in the UK, they're, you know, introducing mindfulness classes, right? Or mindfulness yes. sessions um, in school. I did also read that there was one secondary school in the UK that had introduced um, a class or a workshop on learning to fail. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, my daughter's school, she's in secondary school, she's in year eight at the moment, and her schools also introduced that. So they're doing something where, you know, it's a workshop, I think it goes over a weekend or something, and it's about dealing with failure. Because a lot of, of, of us, you know, adult and children alike struggle to come to terms with, you know, not doing as well as as we think yeah. we can or should. So I think that is a move in the positive direction. Yeah, and I think also when we look at mainstream, and for some reason in ELT, we always seem to be a few steps behind, which I find really sad, but it's good that we can take some ideas from mainstream. There's a lot of focus, particularly on the States, as you might know, on social emotional learning. Mm. So those social emotional competences, and I'm working really hard to integrate that into my teacher training courses as well. I'm writing a book at the moment on social emotional competencies for teachers and learners in the ELT mm -hmm. classroom, because these are not just skills for kids. These are not just skills for the classroom. They're actually life skills that can benefit all of us, like learning to fail can benefit any person, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it used to all be separated, didn't it? I mean, teachers dealt with the content, teacher dealt with the learning in the classroom. Anything beyond that was for the psychologist or the school counsellor. Yeah. And, and then we can go back to the question, what actually is my job? It's not teaching my kids to brush their teeth. <laughs> is it actually to teach them how to manage their emotions? Um, However, I do believe as a primary teacher quite strongly that a part of your job is that because you are not just teaching the language, you are actually teaching little people who are still going through a very important formative process in life. Yeah. And even nowadays with teenagers, like I said at the start, not everybody gets these opportunities at home. They don't always get good role models. So I think mm. it's really important that we help our kids grow that growth mindset how do I deal with stress? How can I manage my failure? How can I sort of develop good relationships with others? Because these are skills that are even more important, I think. I don't know what you think. In the time of AI, these human skills are becoming more and more important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, uh, and we really only have just two minutes here, so we have to wrap <laughs> up, but we could talk all day about this. We um, could, what indeed. you said about AI, um, when you look or when you listen to the way some people speak to Siri or Alexa, you just think to yourself, I bet you you wouldn't speak to your mother or to yeah. your best friend like that. You know, it's like, um, my daughter's a wicked one for that. She goes, Alexa! And I'm like, oh my God, you wouldn't speak to me like that. Oh, but there and, you go. And, if we don't teach them what is normal with human beings, we could get all sorts of uh, <laughs> trouble going on in our classrooms. Yeah, I am. Um, I have a colleague who's who's doing um, a PhD. Uh, she's looking at um, people's interactions or young people's interactions with Alexa and other devices, oh. right? 
And she shared that in one family that she had observed, the the child was a, a very young child, I think four years old or something, and the child did not realize that Alexa was not a real human being. And the child really did think that the mother was talking to this other person called Alexa. And if we're not careful, we are going to forget, you know, our, our kids, our young people are going to forget, um, you know, the boundary between, you know, a conversations with AI and conversations with, with real humans. Um, that is really interesting. Um, last words from you, Anna, what would you like listeners to take away from this chat that we've had about emotions? I'd be very happy if people start to reflect, for example, on how they respond and then start to see if that's triggered by something and think about how can I be more emotionally agile so I can actually respond in a way that is beneficial for the social interactions and that learning in the classroom. And yeah, start to explore these beautiful worlds of emotions because like we said, there's so many different angles and, and links. It is really the foundation of any learning. If students don't feel safe in a classroom, don't feel mm -hmm. happy in that classroom, I think it doesn't matter what books you use, what great techniques you have, very little will happen if your brain doesn't feel safe. I like that. Doesn't matter what you have, it's nothing if your brain doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Links into what I say to my students at the beginning of every class. I say, this is our safe space. If you don't succeed, it's fine. If, you know, you've said something that's not grammatically accurate or correct in English, it's okay. Sometimes I have students and these are, you know, adults. They're not teens. They, they laugh at each other when somebody's made a mistake and I just go up to that person and I say we don't do that in this classroom don't laugh and then they're shocked you know they're shocked because I've addressed it and my kids tell me that in their own classrooms things behavior like this is not addressed wow. and and my kids they're they're good kids they're very good learners but they they lose self-confidence when they yeah. see other people being laughed at and things like that so my advice dear listeners my takeaway for you is um think about how you respond or don't respond to classroom incidents both anticipated and unanticipated thank you very okay. much anna it has been lovely we'll carry on the conversation some other time, some other day. Thank you very much for being with us. We are going to play the ads one more time and then we're going to close. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers.
Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. Adapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, and that has been me with Anna Hasper talking about emotions.